so it is October 4th, and uh, Sunday morning, and potluck Sunday. Our message this morning is about Sukkot. Sukkot is a Hebrew word that means tabernacles. And uh, we happen to be in the seventh month of Israel's year. It's their last feast, and it is the feast of Sukkot, which we call tabernacles. Isn't that cool? i got to get all my stones out of my pocket, my scripture cards. Because something's happening is making my jeans tighter. It's got to be the weather. weather. Uh, we know I'm not growing, right? I'm not growing, am I, Cody? Just a little bit. Turn to John 7. Hallelujah. Jesus is good, isn't he? Hey, that word in worship is still in me. There is a war in heaven. Michael and his angels fought. And who fought back? Satan. But he was not strong enough. Come on now. That is such good news. I mean, it is one thing to face an adversary. It is another thing to know in advance. He does not have what it takes to beat you. Come on now. You know, I got a little boy, and he plots all day long. In fact, two of them. They even work in tandem. They live for the day they can take Dad, right? So they hide around corners. They sneak out at me. They wait for moments when I'm on the couch and jump on me. And when they're not doing that, I'm antagonizing them to do it. You know why I can play with them like that all of the time? I know they're not strong enough to do any serious damage. (laughs) Not yet. Well, there's an enemy. And what you need to know is if you stay in Jesus, he cannot do you any serious damage. If you stay in Jesus, you will survive the battle. You will win the battle. And guess what? That Revelation 12, 7 says he's been cast out of his place in heaven. (laughs) God's making room for you. (laughs) Come on now. God is making room for you. How cool is that? You know, I went to a football game one time, and somebody else was sitting in my seat. Oh, no. (laughs) I had a ticket, though. I had a right to be there. He did not. He didn't get to finish that game in my seat because it was mine. Saints, there are heavenly things that are yours. Don't you let some wicked, rebellious power keep you from getting what is yours. You understand? All right, that's the preamble. Are you all in John 7? See, that's what's wrong with the crazy, charismatic world. We let Jesus lead our services, and we never know what will happen. (laughs) If you're a guest here, don't be... Too weirded out by us. All real Christians are a little strange. And uh, we're also full of love and see an abundant harvest in the kingdom because we're just foolish enough to do what other people will not do. Like, praise God without any sense of abandonment. Like, go love people that others won't. Christianity is radical. And 2,000 years of institutionalizing has tried to tame it. I will not be tamed. I will not be tamed because the king of the universe is not interested in being tamed. He's interested in being God. Amen? Amen. Come on, John 7. So uh, after this, Jesus, (laughs) what a statement, after this, right? Does that make you want to know what's before this? (laughs) Most of Jesus' disciples have just left him. Wow. I mean, don't you judge a church by the number of people in it? Jesus' ministry was kind of a failure then after three and a half years. He only had 12. One of them was a devil. Talk about the battle of attrition. What happened to the 70s sent out? Where were they? Hmm. You think maybe it's true when he says the love of most will grow cold? No, that couldn't be true. We're Americans. God loves us, right? Come on now. There are serious stakes. He said, after this, after Jesus preached a message that the people determined was hard, right? Don't we all love a good word on grace? After a message that Jesus preached, the people said, this is hard. Who can accept it? But a select few said, you have the words of life. Where would we go? They clung to him. After that, Jesus went around in Galilee, purposely staying away from Judea because of the Jews. Now, that couldn't be all Jews. He couldn't be staying away from all Jews. You know why? He was a Jew. (laughs) This is a term that means the Jewish leadership. He's staying away from those Judean Jews who were leaders. Uh, Staying away from the Jewish leadership, they were waiting to take take his life. 
But when the Jewish feast of tabernacles was near, Jesus' brothers said to him, Wow, did you know Jesus had brothers? I was taught, because I grew up in a part of the world where this was a popular teaching, that Jesus' mama never did normal mama things. That Joseph and Mary did not have a normal relationship. Well, I don't know how James and Joseph and Judas and Simon and Jesus' sisters got here then, because Mark 6, 3 names them all and calls them Jesus' brothers and sisters. Apparently, sometimes not everything the church tells you is true. Boy, and that is scary thought. Good thing you are holding Bibles in your hands. Who has the responsibility to find out what is true? Why would you delegate that to anyone else? Especially a paunchy old man in a funny hat. <laughs> you have that right. No one else does. Now, once you've determined that God has plugged you in somewhere, once you have seen fruit that proves that God is among the people that you're worshiping with, you'd be a fool to stand as an island and not begin to accept correction from other people. Because it's an oil, it's a kindness. You alone have the right to determine what is God's will for your life. But he has been gracious to us. He has appointed apostles and prophets and teachers and pastors and evangelists to help mature us. Paul said, even if I'm not one of those things to some, I, I am to you. He wrote that to the Corinthian church. How could he say that? Because he had lived among them. He had taught them and they had seen the fruit in his life. Saints, Jesus' own brothers, mother, and sisters set out in Mark 3.21 to take charge of Jesus and said he is out of his mind. Doesn't sound like they were believers, huh? In fact, when we keep reading here, listen to this. It's the Jewish Feast of, Past of Tabernacles. Jesus' brothers said to him, You ought to leave here and go to Judea so that your disciples may see the miracles you do. No one who wants to become a public figure acts in secret. They're giving Jesus marketing advice. Since you are doing these things, show yourself to the world. For even his own brothers did not believe in him. Wow. <laughs> what an amazing statement. Wouldn't you think that the people that grew up in the house with Jesus would have been the first to believe in him? I mean, didn't Mary hear the voice of an angel and know that what was born in her was the Son of God? Of course she did. And yet even she got confused when she saw God's will being displayed perfectly in her son's life. And she set out in Mark 3.21 to take charge of the Son of God. And guess what? You think you have an overbearing mother. There's hope. Because Jesus was 33 years old and his mama was still chasing him around trying to make him do what he refused to do. You remember the very first wedding? <laughs> first, first miracle in scripture? She had a good idea. But he said, woman, what have I to do with you? His job was to perfectly display the will of the Father. If that was Jesus' job, what do you think your job is? You're also supposed to perfectly be walking in the will of the Father. What your family does, what anyone else around you does, does not change your responsibility. And I want you to understand something. You will endure lots of advice in your life. That doesn't make it right, and it doesn't make it God's will. And we have a tendency to cling to the advice that we like the most. Learn to cling to the Word, and you'll be fine. Do you think that if this book writes down and says it was the Jewish feast of tabernacles, that that's important? I mean, why lay the setting? If we're talking to Debbie, and I say, Debbie, it was the American feast of Fourth of July. Does that matter? Well, sure it matters. She's British. Talking to an Inuit. She used to be British. She's still kind of British, but she's a Grafton into Texas. She's one with Gabe, so she's, what is it, Inglexus? There you go. England and Texas, Inglexus. Y'all aren't impressed with it? Look, if y'all don't laugh at my jokes, I'll cry and leave. How embarrassing will that be? Come on now. It is important, the cultural setting. You know, you can go, uh, let's just say, to Singapore and say, Whoa, it's the 4th of July. And they go, huh? Sorry, it doesn't mean anything to us. What's July anyway? 
right? This is a special feast. It's a special time of year. How cool is that? And the book begins to tell us, the Word of God tells us that it's a special time. And he begins to describe it. Don't you think we ought to know what that time is? Oh, man, I do too. Now, by the way, I stayed confused forever about this next passage that's here. I'm not going to get into all of it with you. I'm just going to tell you. Jesus says, no, I'm not going. (laughs) And then he goes anyway. Wow, I thought he was like truthful. I thought he was the son of God, never did anything wrong. He didn't. The feast is multiple days. He did not go on the day they wanted him to go. How about that? See, knowing the format, knowing the cultural setting, it can change the way you view even Jesus' actions, can't it? You know? If I say, hey, Matthew, it's Christmas. Go to this house. And Matt says, no, I'm not going. And then later it says he went, right? It looks to me like he either did or did not go on Christmas. But I didn't know it was a seven-day-long event. And he didn't go on the day I asked him to. Does that make sense to you? Yeah, that doesn't belong in the Bible book of difficulties. I want to tell you something about sevens real quick. There are seven days in a week. That's no big shocker, is it? <laughs> but why are there seven days in a week? I mean, how weird is that? Because God did everything in seven days. So anywhere you go and there's a seven-day week, that's kind of like a testament to the fact that God's Word is true. Because huh? it could have been arbitrary. We could have picked a 13-day week, right? I mean, if there was no God, there was no creation, there was no powerful Word of God moving in the earth. I mean, can you imagine a 13-day work week? That would be rough, wouldn't it? You know, Egyptian slaves worked seven days. But still, every seventh day started, the eighth day started a new week. There are seven days in the week. There are seven feasts in the Israeli feast calendar, right? These were called mikras, holy convocations, rehearsals for something else. The word mikra means both holy gathering and it means rehearsal. Seven times a year, Israel got together to rehearse something. The number of months that the feast occur in, right? Israel has 12 normal months and then they have a 13th that's added every now and then for a uh, leap year because they have a lunar calendar. But all of the feasts are accomplished in the first seven months of the year. Seven keeps showing up there, doesn't it? How many days did they march around Jericho? Seven days. And on the seventh day, the walls of Jericho fell, and it became the kingdom of God. That's interesting, isn't it? There are seven days in the Feast of Tabernacles. I think every little detail that God is going to give us about the Feast of Tabernacles will point you in one direction. Seven has to do with completeness in the Bible. There is a perfect time in which God is working, and he seems to like to work in the number seven. By the way, we are fond of saying things like there were 4,000 years from uh, Genesis to Jesus, and from Jesus till now, how many years do people say there are? 2009, right? We still number our years based upon his entrance on the scene. That's a testimony about his power, isn't it? Humble Jewish carpenter, and when you sign a date, you're testifying to the fact that he existed. That's awesome. Jewish people number their years differently. They number it from creation, and they say we are in the year 5,770. If there are seven days in a week, if there are seven feasts in a year, if you march around Jericho seven times, if there were seven months in which the seven feasts were completed in, I wonder how many millennia there will be. Didn't Peter tell us a day is as a thousand years? Now, I'm not prophesying to you. I'm surmising. I'm wondering. That's thought worth thinking, isn't it? Remember, friends, the Lord is not slow, as some understand slowness, Peter said. But to him, a day is as a thousand years. I know you've heard, he could come back any minute. He could come back any minute. How many weeks were there in Daniel? Seventy. (laughs) How about that? You heard he could come back any minute, any minute, any minute, any minute, any minute. I don't see a temple standing there. Revelation said there would be a temple there. Daniel said there would be a temple there. I don't see lots of things that could have happened. Do you think maybe that we're missing something in God's timetable? I want to say what the Feast of Tabernacles represents. This is a time period when all of Israel would go and they built booths, right? Or tabernacles. If you're from Louisiana, they built lean-tos, right? <laughs> Those shelters. And a kind of a cool thing, they built them out of fruit trees, 
They built them out of palm leaves, and uh, they left a little hole in their shelter so that they could see the stars. They did this so that while they are in these temporary dwellings, they could keep their eyes on the promises of God. Because God said to their ancestor, Abraham, your descendants will be as many as those stars in the sky. Uh, turn with me then to John 7. I guess we will pick up in uh, 25. Still in the Feast of Tabernacles. At that point, some of the people of Jerusalem began to ask, Isn't this the man they are trying to kill? Here he is, speaking publicly, and they are not saying a word to him. Have the authorities really concluded he is the Christ? But we know where this man is from. When the Christ comes, no one will know where he is from. That's not an assertion made anywhere in the scripture. The, the word actually says that he would be a descendant of David and from Bethlehem. Then Jesus, still teaching in the temple courts, cried out, Yes, you know me, and you know where I'm from. I am not here on my own, but he who sent me is true. You do not know him, but I know him, because I am from him, and he sent me. At this they tried to seize him, but no one laid a hand on him, because his time had not yet come. Still many in the crowd put their faith in him. If you ever sold the Jewish nation as a nation that rejected Jesus, you're missing lines like that. How many in the crowd put their faith in him? Many. They said, when the Christ comes, will he do more miraculous signs than this man? The Pharisees heard the crowd whispering such things about him, then the chief priest and the Pharisees sent temple guards to arrest him. Jesus said, I am with you only for a short time, and then I go to the one who sent me. You will look for me, but you will not find me, and where I am, you cannot come. The Jews said to one another, Where does this man intend to go that we cannot find him? Will he go where our people live scattered among the Greeks and teach the Greeks? What did he mean when he said, You will look for me, but you will not find me? And where I am, you cannot come. It's a very important verse. It says, on the last and greatest day of the feast. How many days were in the feast? Seven. Seven. It's going to be an important number as we move forward. On the last and greatest day of the feast. If I said, hey, man, at the greatest part of 4th of July, what would you think we would be talking about? Probably the firework bombings, huh? If, uh... We talked about the greatest day of any particular festival. You would think of some part of it. You know what the greatest day, the greatest part of the day was for the Feast of Tabernacles? The Jewish leaders began to sing a song that comes from Isaiah 12. It's about the spring of living water and drawing water from the well of salvation. And they carried water in a golden vessel, right? Big golden vessel. What's gold represent? This is because God, in Jeremiah 2, calls himself a spring of living water. In Jeremiah 17, he calls himself a spring of living water. In Revelation 7, he calls himself a spring of living water. In John 4, Jesus called himself living water. And they're carrying a big golden vessel that symbolizes living water. And do you know what they did with it? They set out 12 earthen vessels. Twelve ordinary, common, earthen vessels. And they began to pour the substance of God, the living water, into twelve earthen vessels as they sang with water from the wells of salvation and joy we draw from you, Lord. And it came from Isaiah 12. Is that an important detail to know? Well, listen to what Jesus says. On the last and greatest day of the feast... Jesus stood and said in a loud voice, If anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, streams of living water will flow from within them. By this he meant the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were later to receive. Come on, saints. We're at a crescendo in the feast schedule. They are pouring out God's divine presence in symbol and type. And Jesus says, you don't need to drink of that. You need to come 
and drink of me. Do you think that's important? It's so important that it is what our entire human existence is about at the moment. See, right now, 2 Corinthians 5 says something. It says, while we live in this tent of a body, tent is another word for tabernacle. You are right now in a body that is temporary. It is not permanent. But what is supposed to power you? The power of the Holy Spirit is supposed to be powering you. Wow. Turn with me to 2 Samuel. We're going to be in the 6th chapter. Let him come and drink of me. On Jericho, the seventh day, they marched around how many times? Seven. And when they blew the shofar, they blew the authority of the king of the rams, the king of the sheep. The walls fell. On the seventh day, Jesus said, If any man thirsts, let him come and drink of me. Are you ready for 2 Samuel 6? Yes. David again brought together out of Israel chosen men, 30,000 in all. You are here because the king of Israel chose you to be here. You're not here by happenstance. You're not here just because your son invited you, Sherry. You're here because the king of the universe invited you. You're not here, Matthew, because you grew tired of Louisiana, although that would be understandable. (laughs) You are here because the king of the universe invited you. You need to understand something. The assembly of Israel, the congregation of Israel was chosen. God called them and said, you are my chosen, my special, my royal possession. He said this over and with wedding language to them. He said, I have picked you out of all the peoples of the earth. That language, the Apostle Paul in the book of Corinthians, applies to you. He calls you the church of God or the assembly of God. It actually means the ecclesia or those that are called out from the world for God. You were chosen to be here. That means that these three young men over here did not just happen in here. You know? God chose them. They're stretching during worship. Man, they're getting ready. You know why? Because young men were built for action. God has spaced in the church some who are zealous and don't have all the knowledge they need. Some who have more than enough knowledge to give away to others. Some who are a little more uh, prayerful. Some who are a little more impetuous. And all of it makes a body of Christ. Many members, one body. It's why it's necessary that we come together in unity. David chose men. Jesus chose you. David again brought together out of Israel chosen men, 30,000 in all. He and all his men set out from Bela of Judah to bring up from there the ark of God, which is called by the name. Name is the Hashem, the authority, the character, the reputation, the body of work of God. That ark, which is called by the name, the authority, character, body of work, reputation, it represents all that God is. You might say that the ark represents his very presence. So that when looking at Jesus, you could say, you were looking at the ark. Because he is a vessel, a container for the very presence of God. Are you following that logic? Inside of the ark was a staff that budded. The perfect law of God, complete, intact, totally. There was also a jar of manna. Jesus claimed to be all of those things. I didn't come to abolish the law. I came to fill it full, to complete it in every way, in a circular sense that never ends. Fred gave me that. That's good, Fred. He came and said, I am the bread from heaven. He's that manna. He is the way, the truth, and the life, the staff that budded. He is all of those things. When looking at the ark, when looking at Jesus, either one, you're looking at the body of work of God. Now watch. The name of the Lord Almighty who is enthroned between the cherubim. God has a chariot throne. Revelation 6 describes it. Ezekiel describes it. He describes an angelic host, a sea of glass or ice, and above it, 24 elders, people singing, and God enthroned above four cherubim, winged creatures. He's on it, and the Bible presents it like a chariot, meaning that it's movable. God is not stationary. You don't have to travel necessarily to Him. He can travel 
to you. This is how the Word can confidently say He is enthroned upon your praises. Our God is not limited by His location. In any direction that He moves, Ezekiel said, He's moving forward. <laughs> Isn't that great? There's four interlocking wheels, two this way and two this way, and yet whatever way He moves is forward. Yeah, you can only be God and do that. There's nothing about Him that's backwards. <laughs> Everything that He does is forward. He's enthroned above this ark. So when you saw the ark, you thought of God's presence. Between the cherubim that are on the ark, they set the ark of God on a new cart and brought it from the house of Abinadab, which was on a hill. Uzzah and Ohio, he was not a Buckeye, sons of Abinadab were guiding the new cart with the ark of God on it. And Ohio was walking in front of it. This is a big problem. And it's a big problem because of all the things that God said. He never said that he wanted oxen pulling his presence. Of all the things that God said, he never said, put me in a station wagon. Even God doesn't like those things. He never said, I want to put my glory on animals or on wooden carts. In fact, Chronicles 15.1 says, The God of Israel's ark is to be carried by Levites. Why Levites? Because they were a special chosen priestly group of men who represented God, and God wanted His glory to rest on men's shoulders. When you read down in Chronicles 15 to the 13th verse, it says, It was because we didn't inquire of God and get this right that He was angry with us, and you're fixing to read what happens. David and the whole house of Israel were celebrating with all their might before the Lord, with songs and with harps and lyres, tambourines, sistrums, and cymbals. When they came to the threshing floor of Nacon, Uzzah reached out and took hold of the ark of God, because the oxen stumbled. It's a funny thing. It seems like such a noble intent. It seems like such a good thing. I mean, we don't want the ark to fall on the ground. Do you know how audacious it is to think that you can grab hold of the presence of God and control it? And yet this is exactly what religion does. Religion tries to bottle the presence of God and control it in a way that's pleasing to them. I mean, we will sell you the anointing in a bottle for $19.99. We will give you a cloth for only three payments of whatever, but wait, there's more. And then we'll sell you something else, you know. Oblivion missionaries too. Who, who knows, whatever it is. So, so many splinters of the cross for sale that you could rebuild Noah's Ark, right? This is all an attempt to take the presence of God and control it and put it in an ark. And when it's moving in a way you don't like, to steady it, to make it more palatable. In the hometown that I come from, one of the denominational churches that did not believe in the moving of the Spirit and the way that the charismatic churches did, threw somebody out. The problem is, as he started a church in his garage, and over a few decades, it became a church larger than the population of the town it was in. That meant people were coming from other towns to be a part of it. So the church that I was in sent its pastors to go find out what are those people doing. And they decided it was that they were talented. It was the talent that drew people. It was the beautiful musical arrangement. And it may have something to do with the lighting. And so they reproduced all of those things. But not in the main sanctuary. They didn't want to offend anyone. still didn't have. They still didn't have the unbridled spirit of God because they still had their rules. And so it didn't work. You can look from a distance and see what God's moving is like. But until you are ready to submit to it in any way that He chooses, He is not fully Lord of you. Do you understand the difference? If you put restrictions on what God can and can't do, what He will and won't do, He is not fully Lord of might be Lord of someone sitting next to you, but not you. Now, I think Uzzah was probably a very good man. None of these things went through his mind. I think he simply saw a beautiful box that represented God, something that he reverenced about to fall, and he went to steady. But he was also about to ruin something that was beautiful. Can you believe that a man is going to lose his life over this? How do you handle the presence?
presence of God is a very important thing. How you handle God's anointing is a very important thing. How you handle His moving in your life is a very important thing. And not just one man has lost his life over it. Many hundreds of thousands have lost their lives over it. The freedoms that you enjoy, the books that are sitting in your laps, were brought to you on printing presses greased with the blood of the saints. The very first Bibles ever printed in the vernacular of the English people, the men and women who printed them were burned upon them. A guy named John Huss was killed for nothing more than saying the Bible is true. And everything else is suspect to man's interpretation that the Bible is true. A hundred years later, God raised up a flawed German monk who turned the world upside down with just one statement, sola scriptura, by the Bible alone. And we take these things for granted, saints. And we think, if I don't like what happens here, I'll just go right down the road. Adjusting the ark on the cart wherever we want it. Right? We're just going to make it fit whatever we would like. It, you know... I don't like the way that picture is tilted. Let's just adjust it. What if the picture was right and you were wrong? Well, you can make it look pleasing to your eye, but that doesn't make you right. Come on, saints. There is a standard, and it is the moving of God's Spirit. And we must be sensitive to Him. Let's move on. When they came to the threshing floor of Nacon, Uzzah reached out his hand and took hold of the ark of God because the oxen stumbled. The Lord's anger burned against Uzzah because of his irreverent act. Therefore God struck him down and he died there beside the ark of God. Have you ever had the thought, man, the Old Testament, the Old Testament is all blood and guts. I mean, God would smack a fool in the Old Testament, but the New Testament is just, I mean, it's all grace. I mean, buttery sweet. Ever read about Ananias and Sapphira? And there is that one story contained in all four Gospels about a Jewish carpenter who was brutally murdered on a cross. And it was God's will to crush him for your benefit. So it's not an old and New Testament thing. There is one God, and I want you to get something. He takes his presence very seriously. It is our job to conform to what God wants us to be, not to conform him to the way we think he ought to be. Hey, let me just give you a, a cute little example, a cute one. That way nobody's got their feelings hurt, right? Cute. So we have a picture of Jesus right here. I mean, oh, my son has a picture of Jesus in his room that looks like this, too. When you're picturing Jesus right now, right? I just told you there was one hanging here. What color is his hair? What, what shape is there, his facial features? Is he lily white and blue eyes? In what way have we taken the image of God in our mind? Does he look like you? Or does he look like someone else? Does he look like a king in England? Because the king that we read about was a Jewish king who celebrated Jewish festivals. Had no idea what Christmas was. Had never heard of Easter. He also had not heard of some good things like crawfish. But he was Jewish. When we begin to think about the setting in which things occur, when we think about him, we need to picture him in the way, by the way, his mom never at any time his whole life referred to him as Jesus. Is that a surprise? His name was Yeshua. Come on. Do you like people to call your kids what you name them? Yeah. Do you have one of those stubborn aunts that no matter what you want your kid to be named, she calls them whatever she would like them to be named, right? Some of you have the same aunt, don't you? You named them for a reason, didn't you? Everything that this Bible paints as a picture is there for a reason. And God stopped Uzzah from doing something that would ruin the moving picture for all the nations to see. We're going to get to the nations. Watch this. Uh, the Lord's anger burned against Uzzah because of his irreverent act. Therefore, God struck him down, and he died there beside the ark of God. Then David was angry because of the Lord's wrath that had broken out against Uzzah. And to this day, that place is called Perez Uzzah. Even David is angry. Come on now, you've never not liked something that God did? How about did you not like something he didn't do? I, I prayed for a little girl that's a relative of some people in this church for a long time. We put her picture on our wall and prayed for her service after service after service.
she died. That make anybody unhappy? It made a lot of people unhappy. And in the years subsequent to that, foundations have been started, people have been ministered to, amazing things can happen. You cannot like the way God does something, but you'll never be able to argue with his results. He's above something that we're confined by, and it's called time. If you give it time and you give perspective, whatever has happened that seems so horrible, God will show you how it will bear fruit over time. I promise that. I held a woman's hands while she died. I watched her die. My friend said a thoughtless thing to me. He said, Eric, didn't you try to get her out of the bed? Didn't, I mean, come on now. You didn't get up and walk her around? You didn't try to raise her from the dead? Her death and later her husband's death have financed a ministry to Israel that is bearing fruit to this day. And she was spirit-filled. And her husband was spirit-filled. And they were on fire for God in the last six months of their lives. Where is the tragedy in that? But I spent a few months trying to wrap my mind around it. Since I don't know what has happened to you that is difficult, but I feel the Holy Spirit telling me to pause on this point. I don't know what it is that is so hard to get past, so hard to understand. But I can tell you this. If you can take the time to get God's perspective, He's never had a thoughtless act. He knows the end from the beginning. And He has promised that His plans for you are good and not bad. He has plans to prosper you and not harm you. The God of the universe is not an angry old man with a white beard trying to smack you around with a stick. That was some devilish church that was trying to extort you. But that was never God. Our king is the kind that goes out of his way to rescue you. That stands up against the establishment and says, what they have is not what you need. You come to me and you drink of me and I will sustain you. I will give you the very presence of God. What an obstinate people it would take to say, don't want it. No, don't want it. Well, Uzzah gives his life here to not ruin an example that God is teaching. Watch this example because it's awesome. David was afraid of the Lord that day and said, How can the ark of the Lord ever come to me? He was not willing to take the ark of the Lord to be with him in the city of David. Instead, he took it aside to the house of Obed-Edom the Gittite. The ark of the Lord remained in the house of Obed-Edom the Gittite for three months. And the Lord blessed him and his entire household. Wouldn't you think, if church, you all banded together and threw me out, right? We have to pretend we're Baptists for a minute. Can I say that out loud? I'm sorry. We'd have to pretend that we were in a denomination for a minute, whichever one suits your fancy. And you didn't like something I said, so you threw me out. And I don't know, I landed over there in the thrift store. And before long, the thrift store grew and overtook this entire area. And even the children of the people who threw me out came and worshipped there and got born again and baptized and spirit-filled. Wouldn't you think that whoever the board was that was here would repent? Men are stubborn. I've seen that play out over and over and over again. Lakewood was started just like that. And so was Bethany World Prayer Center in my hometown. Men that were thrown out of Baptist churches. At least, although David was angry, in his anger, he did not sin. Listen to this. There's nothing wrong with getting mad. Lots of things should make you mad. Now, maybe not somebody cutting you off in traffic. (laughs) But the death of a human being should make you mad. What you do in your anger, this is what determines whether or not it's righteous or not. And watch what David does. He notices that wherever the presence of God goes, there is a blessing, and he wants the blessing, even if it doesn't come in the way that he wanted it. Come on now. Do you want the blessing, or do you want Jesus in a can? Do you want the blessing, or do you want God in a box? Do you want the blessing, Or do you want the mechanical, hula-string Jesus that simply says whatever you want to hear? Do you want the blessing? See, you have to pursue his presence. Watch what David does when he sees where the Lord's presence is. Now King David was told, The Lord has blessed the household of Obed-Edom in everything he has because of the ark of God. So David went down and brought up the ark of God from the house of Obed-Edom to the city of David with Rejoicing. I want you to hear this. The presence of God and rejoicing have a relationship. If somebody tells you they are swimming in the presence of God and they look like this, they're probably liars. Swimming in the presence of God. Somebody hold me up. 
unbelief, the presence of God is accompanied by rejoicing. Now, that doesn't mean every happy person is filled with the presence of God. I told a man one time that his son was going to be all right. He threw his son out of his house because he got spirit-filled. Amazing thing. He didn't mind when his son was going to topless bars. I said, hey, fella, your kid's going to be all right. He's going to be okay. He's smiling. That's a start. He said, yeah, but all kind of idiots have those. I said, well, it really makes you wonder who the idiot is, doesn't it? <laughs> We've been waiting for 15 years for that man to see where the presence of God is. And he still has it. What makes a man's heart hard like that? It comes down to one thing. You want the ark on a cart? Or do you want the ark inside of you, controlling you? moving you? Is he Lord of you? Or is he Lord in a container that you get to consult like a magic eight ball when you feel like it? Now King David was told, I read you that, verse 13, when those who were carrying the ark of the Lord has taken uh, six steps, he sacrificed a bull and a fattened calf. Almost like the sacrifice had to come before the completion. (laughs) Kind of like Six, the number of days man was created on, the number of sin in the Bible, required a sacrifice to get to seven. David, wearing a linen ephod, danced before the Lord with all his might. How reverent does that sound? He danced before the Lord with all of his might. How reverent does that sound? Well, if you redefine the Bible, if you redefine your thoughts in relation with the Bible, that would be the definition of reverence. But if an institution has shaped what you think of as reverence, they will call this irreverent. David was a Jew. When he thought of the word praise, if he had to write it for someone, it started with the letter hey, which is a man with his hands raised. And yet in some churches, if you raise your hands, they will throw you out. I'm not advocating everything that David did here. Not everything. But certainly an attitude. This is what else David did. David wearing the linen ephod danced before the Lord with all his might. While he and the entire household of Israel brought up the ark of the Lord with shouts and the sound of shofars, trumpets. As the ark of the Lord was entering the city of David, Michael, daughter of Saul, watched from a window. And when she saw the king leaping and dancing before the Lord, she despised him in her heart. They brought the ark of the Lord and set it in its place inside the tent David had pitched for it. Where did the ark go? Inside a tent. Another word for tent would be tabernacle. If you prefer the word booth, you could call it that. It's just a big booth. The ark of God, with great sacrifice, great joy, great celebration, ascended onto a mountain entered into a tent. Saints, what Jesus was speaking about on the feast, celebrating the time period men tabernacled, was that his presence could be placed inside of your tent. No longer would you have to go to Jerusalem, to the place where his name dwells, to contact him. No longer would you have to see a man specially anointed by him, wearing a certain ephod, wearing a certain garment, with a certain number of stones and all of these things on him to atone for your sin. His presence could be set up inside of you. Saints, that is an amazing thing. They took this tabernacle called David's Tabernacle, and they actually opened the doors and rolled up the sides of it, history tells us. You know why? When something's on a hilltop, is it easily hidden? No. And you're supposed to be like a city on a hilltop. You're not supposed to put your lamp under a bushel, right? They rolled up the sides of this tent so that everybody walking by Jerusalem could see inside of a temporary dwelling the glory of God. They wanted to make it accessible. David hired worshipers to worship 24 hours a day so that the presence of God would be associated joyful worship. Why do you think the devil's tried so hard to suppress this? Why do you think the devil's worked so hard to make our churches look like business meetings? Why do you think he's worked so hard to shove God into a box? 
You know, the strange thing is God in a box sells well. Yeah. It does. It's true. People that have never tithed in a church will pay $29 to have the Lord's Prayer inscribed on a little cross that you can't even see. I mean, you can see it on the commercial when they blow it up late at night. Mm-hmm. But you can't even see it. Why is that? <clears throat> we want a nice, neat, tame little God. You know? At least the Japanese were honest about it. There's little things called Pokemon that our kids play with. It means pocket monster. They carry the, the monster around in their pocket. Right? Kind of like putting a rosary in your pocket and carrying it around, huh? You know? They'll idle. What I'm trying to get at, saints, is that our God can't be contained. Would you like to learn the rest about Sukkot? Since yes. I told you that's what I would teach you about? Yes. Because the beautiful thing about Sukkot is that it was not for Israel alone. See, I'm not Israeli. As far as I know, I am 100% nasty Gentile. Not that all Gentiles are nasty, but everything I ever learned about my family history was not good. So we don't stand here before you with the claim of pedigree. I went to one of those Civil War museums one time and typed my name into a computer. There were seven Stevens that fought there. Isn't that amazing? Six of them were deserters. (laughs) Isn't that great? Turn me to Leviticus 23. You know who the Bible says is your family, don't you? When Jesus' family thought he was crazy, and they came and they set up shop right outside where he was working, he said, who are my mother and my brothers? Only they that do the will of God. You know what that means? It doesn't mean that mom and dad are not your family anymore. It just means that the people who are sitting around you are your family according to the Bible. That is provided they do the will of God. Are you all in Leviticus 23? Start in verse 33. The Lord said to Moshe, Say to the Israelites, On the fifteenth day of the seventh month, the Lord's Feast of Tabernacle begins, and it lasts for seven days. The first day is a sacred assembly. Do no regular work. For seven days present offerings made to the Lord by fire, and on the eighth day hold a sacred assembly and present an offering made to the Lord by fire. I want you to understand, it is a seven-day festival. But on the eighth day... They celebrate the new beginning that's just happened. On the eighth day, they celebrate that the feast is over, and now it's worth celebrating. We're no longer tabernacling. Wow. You think God has ever been trying to tell us something that everything seems to last seven, and then eight starts something new? The plan's over? You've entered the rest? Turns me to Numbers 29. I mean, we could go to Deuteronomy 16, but I think I'd rather read about it in Numbers 29. Is that okay with you? Yes. I know you all know those things. I'm throwing out a scripture reference in case you want to read more in your extra time. It's better than watching Heroes. Heroes is a pretty good show, though. Everything I like, they cancel. Do you think maybe God's trying to tell me to spend more time in the Word? I was a Sarah Connor Chronicles fan, but it's gone. It's just more time to read the Word. Let's walk through these feasts real quick. We start with Passover. That's like getting born again. You've crossed from death to life by the blood of a lamb, by something innocent that died for you. We move from Passover to the Feast of Unleavened Bread. This is taking God's word, his light, his menorah, and it is searching your house, getting rid of any leaven that doesn't belong there. Since how long have you been in the Feast of Unleavened Bread? Certainly longer than you've been in the Feast of Passover, huh? Death passed you over once. Now you're in Jesus. You're alive. But the rest of your life, you're searching out by His Spirit things that don't belong. No, I'm the only one finds things don't belong. No. Okay. Then first fruits. First fruits is the early harvest that you have. Right away when you get born again, you feel God's presence. You feel an early harvest. You see Jesus everywhere you go. One missionary said when he got born again, he got in the car and he was listening to Ario Speedwagon. Like they were singing about Jesus. <laughs> I guess it depends on what song. So I'm not endorsing Ario Speedwagon at the moment. My taste lean further back in the 60s, like CCR and some of those people. Having said that, we move on from the Feast of First Fruits where a man was raised from the dead. And you say, wow, the first harvest. We see a human being raised from the dead. All human beings have that possibility if we do what he did, if we get in him. If we get associated with his name, his authority, his character, his body of work. After the Feast of First Fruits, it was Pentecost. 
this was an outpouring of God's Spirit and His revelation power. You know, the apostles were not allowed to go out and preach about Jesus after they were given the Great Commission that said, go into all the world. There was a qualifying statement. Wait in Jerusalem until you receive what my Father promised. You can go to seminary and come out with a degree, but they are not able to give you the Holy Spirit. Only that can come from Jesus. No matter how many different ways you try to put God in a box, He can't be contained. When He shows up, it's like a blazing torch from heaven that overpowers everything around it. It cannot be contained. So after Pentecost, which was the actual gathering of the early harvest, and by the way, there were no Gentiles saved at Pentecost. Not one. There were Jews from every nation from the diaspora, but no Gentiles born again. Pentecost was an entirely Jewish phenomenon. The next Gentile didn't get saved for almost ten years. Four months go by in the peace schedule. Four long, hard months with no celebrations. You know why? You've been saved. You've been searched by God's Word. You have seen the first fruits of what salvation produces, and you have been empowered by God. Now what's it time to do? Do work, son. <laughs> it's time to do work, son. For four months, you worked in the harvest fields. You planted, you sowed, you reaped, you planted, you sowed, you reaped, you planted, you sowed, you reaped, until you get to the fall harvest time. And one of the things that announced it, the long drought is over, the hard work is over, was a trumpet call. This was the Feast of Trumpets. And when you heard the trumpet call in the fall feast schedule... You raised your head up and you began to look. You looked for signals. You looked for signs that Jews put in fire towers. So that you would know the Day of Atonement is drawing near. Ten days would go by where you were searching your heart waiting for the Day of Atonement. And in a single day, an entire nation's sin would be atoned for. But the feast schedule was not over. They began to celebrate the time period. We're going to read about it in Numbers. They began to celebrate the time period where they had walked in the desert aimlessly, following God's presence, the light of the world, the cloud by day, the fire by night, and He had provided for them. They walked around doing that. This was the Feast of Tabernacles. But there was something deeper in it, something more special in it. Because this was the time period where they sojourned among the nations. They were not in their land yet. Where were they? They were walking through the nations. And God cares about the nations. The fall harvest was not just about Israel. Listen to this in Numbers 29. On the tenth day of the seventh month, hold a sacred assembly. 29-7. You must deny yourselves and do no work. Present, I'm in the wrong verse, I'm sorry, verse 12. On the 15th day of the seventh month, hold a sacred assembly and do no regular work. Celebrate a festival to the Lord for seven days. Present an offering made by fire as an aroma pleasing to the Lord. A burnt offering of 13 young bulls, two rams, and 14 male lambs, a year old, all without defect. With each of the thirteen bulls prepare a grain offering of three-tenths of an ephah, of fine flour mixed with oil. <laughs> and each of the two rams, two-tenths. And with each of the fourteen lambs, one-tenth. Include one male goat as a sin offering in addition to the regular burnt offering with its grain offering and drink offering. Doesn't that sound incredibly complicated? What grabs your attention there? That's a lot of sacrifice, isn't it? How many bulls was it? How many lambs was it? Forty. That's a lot of death, isn't it? This time period we tabernacle in, in flesh is surrounded by death everywhere we go. In fact, it's the very last enemy that will ever be put down. But I want you to hear something. A bull was a special kind of atonement sacrifice. You know why? It was one of the biggest, mightiest of all of the animals. One of the most valuable. And the strangest thing happens. On day one, they kill 13 of them. On day two, you know how many they kill? 12. How many do you think they kill on day three? 11. And on day four? And on day five? 
on day six? And on day seven, how many things they kill? Seven. That's an amazing thing how seven shows up everywhere. And if you add 12, 11, 10, 9, 8, and 7, do you know what you get? Seven. Wow. wonder what 70 could be. Well, Genesis 10-2 lists 70 nations. Genesis 10-2 says that the nations that descended from Noah were 70. Hmm. 70 sacrifices for 70 nations. There were also 70 Israelites that went down into Egypt before their slavery in Egypt. There are also 70 elders in Israel. There are also 70 prophetic weeks in Daniel. Seven in the Bible is always the number of perfection. Completeness. Ten is always the number of human government. There will be a day in which God's perfection shows up in human government. And you know what the first fruit of that is? There is a human in the Godhead right now. His name is Jesus. He was a Jewish carpenter that was deity. He is the express image of God, and he is the perfect sacrifice for all the nations. Our God knows that you must tabernacle in flesh. He knows that you are in a body that is but a tent and surrounded by death. But his desire is to make you clean by a perfect sacrifice. His desire is that the king of Israel would become the king of the nations. And you know what is better than that? His desire is that you would drink deeply of him and be filled with his presence. Because he wants to put you on a mountain called Zion. A mountain that is the Lord's brightness. He wants to roll up the sides of your tent that is your life. And he wants the nations to all look at you and see the glory of God. And Uzzah is not the only man that had to die for this to happen. A perfect man who never made a mistake had to die for this to happen for you. Since if that doesn't make you feel special, I don't know what would. Peter says it this way. You've been given everything that you need for life and godliness. You have been made participators in his divine nature. Israel is celebrating tabernacles right now, and they call it the fall harvest, or the last harvest. What started with Israel, saints, at Pentecost, is consuming the world. The question is, will you be a part of it? Do you want God in a box, or do you want God inside of you? His goal is to be your Lord inside and out. What's your goal? To put Him in a box, or to have Him fill your life in every way? I'm telling you now, the kingdom is at hand. Right now, the kingdom is at hand. The question is, will you live in it or will you look at it from afar? Stand up, we'll worship, we'll pray, and then we'll do Deuteronomy 32, verse 8, says that God apportioned the nations and set boundaries for them based on the number of sons of Israel. And then the Bible goes through great lengths to show you that 70 people in all were Israel that went into Egypt. And there are 70 nations. When Romans 11 says that there's a full number of Gentiles who will come in and then God will turn his attention back to Israel, you better believe God knows the full number. It can be no mistake. The question is, will you be counted in that number or not? Could there be a more important question? Let's worship together. We'll worship a few minutes, then we will eat and do what Christians do best, which is eat a lot.
thing you got to know. Second Samuel 6, David brought the ark up. You know what he did in Second Samuel 7? They put down every single enemy of Israel. And it was so easy for him that he had them lay down. He measured out with a cord. And every third length of a cord, he put the enemies of God to death. You know what he did in Second Samuel 8? See, 7 was the complete victory over his enemies. 8, he looked for any descendants of Saul's household, the former king of the world who didn't do a good job but had now been deposed, to see if he could show kindness to Saul's children. And he found a little crippled boy named Mephibosheth that couldn't walk right. And he put him at the king's table. And he ate there for the rest of his life. See, on the sixth day your sin was dealt with. On the seventh day you rested from all of your fighting with the enemies because King Jesus had beat them. And on the eighth day you started some new relationship with him as a son of God. How cool is that? The week is complete. I just want to walk right with it. Amen? Amen. Let's bless the food. We're not really blessing the food, right? That's a Greek thing. We're thankful that we get the food. We're thankful for the fellowship that comes with it, but mostly we're thankful to the God that provided it for us. Amen. Because there's nothing unclean about food that needs to be blessed. Everything's been given to us for our enjoyment, Paul told Timothy in the sixth chapter. I'm so happy because I like chocolate. I like lots of good things. They were given to us for our enjoyment. Right? Let's pray. Mighty God, we thank you. You looked at the world and said it was good. And you looked at mankind and said it is very good. Holy One, let us see with your eyes the goodness that is in the world. And as we eat and as we fellowship, let us speak of good things. Whatever is excellent, whatever is pure, if anything is noble or praiseworthy, Lord, this is the things that we want to discuss. Lord, let edifying fellowship happen as we eat here with you. Lord, we pray that you're honored in all that we do. We love you, and we bless your great name because you have blessed us. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. Amen. Time to get your grub on. Get your grub. The 70 Gentile nations are about to descend upon this table. Uh, Psalm 90. Let's see.